Welcome to Books and Sound. I'm your host, Don Beavers, and this episode contains a digitally remastered theatrical presentation of one of the great works of literature. Please remember to subscribe so that you can enjoy new episodes as they are released. This podcast is provided free and offered without commercial interruption. If you enjoy the episode, please leave us a positive review so that we can grow the podcast. Enjoy. The World's Great Novels. The National Broadcasting Company presents the first in a two-part version of Henry James' finest novel in an American setting, Washington Square. Another in our series of books that live the world's great novels. In 1895, there lived in a handsome, modern house in historic Washington Square, the distinguished physician, Dr. Austin Sloper, his widowed elder sister, Lavinia, and his only child, Catherine Sloper. Dr. Sloper was a widower, having lost his beautiful and very brilliant wife a week after Catherine was born. As the years passed, Dr. Sloper felt that the laws of compensation had treated him harshly, perhaps ironically, for in leaving him, his wife had presented him with a child utterly lacking in the qualities he had so admired in her. Uptown lived Dr. Sloper's younger sister, Mrs. Armand, married to a prosperous merchant and mother of a large family. As the story opens, a party given by the Armands to celebrate the engagement of their daughter is just ending. Dr. Sloper had managed to look in between his professional calls, and now he stands with Mrs. Armand, Elizabeth, watching his handsomely dressed daughter whirl about on the dance floor. I told Catherine you would be here. Oh, here she comes. Catherine, your father has come to take you home. Ah, is it possible that this magnificent young woman is my child? I'm not magnificent, father. You are sumptuous, opulent, expensive. You look as if you had 80000 a year. Well, so long as I haven't... So long as you haven't, you shouldn't look as if you had. Have you enjoyed the party? I'm rather tired. The carriage is outside and your Aunt Lavinia has already taken her tender leave and is waiting. Lavinia, my dear sister, who was that man, the very handsome young man who was making love to you? Oh, my good brother. He seemed uncommonly tender. Whenever I looked at you, he had the most devoted air. The devotion was not for me. It was for Catherine. He talked only of her. Oh, Aunt Lavinia. Ah, then he's in love with this regal creature next to me. Oh, father. I don't know if it's that, but he did admire her dress. Ah, you see, he thinks you have 80000 a year. Don't believe it, Catherine. He is too. He must be tremendously refined not to think of 80,000 a year. Well, he is. Ah, so you two, Catherine, have been exposed to the charms of the tremendously refined young man. He danced with me. What is the charmer's name, Lavinia? I didn't catch it, and I didn't like to ask him. Uh, Catherine, dear, what is the gentleman's name? I don't know, Aunt Lavinia. I don't know. Dr. Sloper learned the name of the very refined young man four days later from his sister Lavinia. This romantic and sentimental widow had come to stay with Dr. Sloper when Catherine was ten. 
Lavinia had a passion for little secrets and would have liked to have had a lover and to have corresponded with him under an assumed name in letters left at a shop. Lacking a mysterious lover herself, she's now extremely interested in the young man who has just called on Catherine, and so she makes the most of him. He has just been often. It's such a pity you missed him. Whom in the world have I missed, Lavinia? Mr. Morris Townsend. He's made it such a delightful visit. Aunt Lavinia means the gentleman... The gentleman whose name I couldn't remember the other night. The gentleman is Elizabeth Potty, who was so struck with Catherine. Oh, yes. Struck with her expensive red dress. Did you invite him to call Catherine? No, Father. Then it was you, Lavinia. Or is Mr. Townsend the type who calls without the formality of an invitation? Oh, no. He's too refined for that. I did suggest he might pay us a visit, since he's somewhat of a stranger in New York. So his name is Morris Townsend, is he? And did he come here to propose to Catherine? Oh, Father, I... I hope he won't do that without your permission, dear brother. Is that quite necessary? After all, my dear Lavinia, he seems to have yours. Really, officer. The next time Mr. Townsend comes, you'd better call me. He might like to see me. But the next time he called, Dr. Sloper was not at home. Lavinia made sure that Catherine understood that Mr. Townsend had uh, come according and insisted the distraught girl receive Morris alone. Now, I'm afraid I've talked too much about myself. Tell me about yourself, Miss Sloper. Give me a little sketch. There's so little to tell, really. And I have no talent for sketching, Mr. Townsend. Oh, I didn't mean to be taken literally. Uh, do you like music? Yes. I play the piano a little. Ah, music. Music, Miss Sloper, is the greatest pleasure in life. I've heard them all, all the great singers, of when I was in Paris and London. Uh, how about literature? Do you like to read? I'm not very fond of reading. I find it hard to finish books. Books are tiresome, really, but the trouble is you have to read so many before you find it out. The trouble is they're not at all like the things the author describes. The great thing is to see for yourself. I've always tried to see things for myself. When I was a child, I had a secret desire to be an actress. Oh, no, Catherine, not you. I've seen them all, all the great actors in the best theaters in Paris and in London. But they were just like the authors. They always exaggerated. I like everything to be natural. That's why I like you so much. It's so natural. You see, I'm natural myself. Indeed, I'm completely natural. Thank you. It is a beautiful daughter who opens the front door for her father. Or were you waiting impatiently to tell me something? Mr. Morris Townsend was here today. Father, he left before you got home. I've been waiting to tell you. Well, now, don't run away after having announced the joyful tidings. Did the charming Mr. Townsend propose to my dear child today? <laughs> my poor child is not clever at repartee. I offer her the chance to make a brilliant sally, and she, she giggles. Perhaps Mr. Townsend will state his intentions next time, Father. Oh. Then perhaps it is time I found out something about Mr. Townsend. Often our sister Lavinia has already been to ask me about Mr. Townsend. Why, I don't know. She's very peculiar, that Lavinia. She didn't want me to tell you that she has asked about the man. Lavinia has a passion for little secrets and mysteries. <laughs> what did you tell her about Mr. Townsend? Well, there's a vague story that 
He has been wild. I know his sister, Mrs. Montgomery. She's a widow with a little property and five children to support. She lives in Second Avenue. What does Mrs. Montgomery say about him? That he has talent by which he could distinguish himself. Only he's lazy, eh? She doesn't say so. That's family pride. What is this profession? He hasn't got any. He is looking for something. What's his age? Oh, I suppose upwards of 30. I was told he inherited a small property and spent it in a few years. Traveled all over the world, lived abroad, amused himself. Hmm. He has lately come back to America with the intention, I was told, of beginning life in earnest. Can he be earnest about Catherine? Austin, it seems to me you have never done Catherine justice. You must remember she has the prospect of 30000 a year. I see at least you appreciate her merits. I, I, I don't mean that is her only merit, but simply that it is a great one. Many young men think so. Yet you've always had a little way, Austin, of alluding to her as an, as an unmarriageable girl. How many suitors has Catherine had, Elizabeth, with all her financial expectations? How much attention has she ever received? No, Catherine is not unmarriageable, but she is absolutely unattractive. Catherine does very well. The reason she has received so little attention is that she seems to all the young men to be much older than they. Hmm? She's so large and she dresses so formidably they're rather afraid of her. Hmm. And again, they marry so young, before 25, at the age of innocence and sincerity, before the age of calculation. If they only waited a little, Catherine would fare better. As a calculation? Thank you very much. Wait till some intelligent man of 40 comes along. He will be delighted with Catherine. Oh, Mr. Townsend is not old enough, then. His motives may be pure, eh? It is very possible they are. I should be very sorry to take the contrary for granted. Elizabeth, what are his present means of subsistence? I have no idea. He lives, as I say, with his sister. A widow with five children. Do you mean he lives off her? Had you not better ask Mrs. Montgomery herself? Perhaps I may come to that. I'll take a note of the address. Second Avenue, I believe you said. Yes. Well, my dear sister, I am going to give the young man the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to look him over. You should. When is it to be? I told Lavinia the next time he came to ask him to dinner on Wednesday. That's why I called to invite you and your family to be with us. Oh, nice. I shall study Mr. Townsend while he's at the table. You know, I can get a good insight of a man's character by the manner in which he behaves at dinner. Morris Townsend was too intelligent not to realize that though a number of other guests were present, he was the real occasion for the dinner and he put forth a remarkable effort to make a good impression, especially on the analytical Dr. Sloper. Dinner is over. Dr. Sloper is talking to his younger sister Elizabeth while, in another part of the room, Catherine and Morris at last see each other alone. Your father doesn't like me. Doesn't like me at all. I don't see how you know so soon. I feel. I'm very quick to feel. Perhaps you're mistaken. Well, you ask him and you'll see. I would... Rather not ask him if there's any danger of his saying what you think. It wouldn't give you any pleasure to contradict him? I never contradict my father. Will you hear me abused without opening your lips in my defense? My father won't abuse you. I shall never mention you to him. Well, that's very well, but it isn't quite what I should have liked you to say. I should have liked you to say, if father doesn't like you, what does it matter? Ah, oh, but it would matter. I couldn't say that. <sighs> Well, then, not give up the hope of bringing him around. Elsewhere in the room, Dr. Sloper and his sister Elizabeth are in close talk. Well, Austin, what do you think of him? He has ability, Elizabeth. Decided ability. 
He has a good head, if he chooses to use it, and is uncommonly well turned out, quite the sort of figure that pleases the ladies. But I don't think I like him. Lavinia tells me Catherine is in love with him. She must get over it. He's not a gentleman. Oh, he is extremely ingratiating, but it's a vulgar nature. I saw through him in a minute. He's altogether too familiar. I hate familiarity. What do you intend to do? Do? Why, nothing. He's cunning enough to realize I dislike him, that I see through him, and that may discourage him from trying to reach his goal. If he nevertheless continues to find Catherine attractive, then I'll know he's reached the age of cold calculation. Two weeks have passed since Dr. Sloper was told by his sister Elizabeth that Lavinia thinks Catherine is in love with Morris Townsend. Because of a feeling that Dr. Sloper does not like Morris, Catherine has not mentioned his name once. But her more than usual quietness has not gone unnoticed. The doctor suspects Morris Townsend to be the reason for this, and never given to indirectness, he has summoned his sister. Lavinia, will you be so good as to let me know what's going on in the house? Going on often? I'm sure I don't know. I believe that last night the old gray cat had kittens. At her age, the idea is startling, almost shocking. Be so good as to see that they are all drowned. Oh, but what else has happened? Oh, the dear little kittens. I wouldn't have them drowned for the world. Lavinia, your sympathy for kittens arises from a feline element in your own character. Cats are very graceful and very clean. And very stealthy. You are the embodiment, Lavinia, both of grace and of meekness. But you are wanting in frankness. You certainly are not, my dear brother. I don't pretend to be graceful, though I try to be neat. Lavinia, why haven't you let me know that Mr. Morris Townsend's coming to the house four times a week? Four times a week? Five times, if you prefer. I am away all day, but when such things happen, you should let me know. Austin, dear, I am incapable of betraying a confidence. Has Catherine made you take a vow of eternal secrecy? By no means. Catherine has not told me as much as she might. Is it the young man, then, who has made you his confidant? I take a great deal of interest in Mr. Townsend. I won't conceal it. What is the source of your interest in Mr. Townsend? His misfortunes, Austin. Oh, that, of course, is always interesting. Are you at liberty to mention a few of Mr. Townsend's misfortunes? He has entrusted me with his whole history. I can't repeat it. He will tell it to you, I'm sure, if he thought you would listen kindly. <laughs> I shall request him very kindly, then, to leave Catherine alone. Ah, but Catherine has probably said something to him kinder than that. Said that she loved him? Is that what you mean? As I tell you often, she does not confide in me. You do have an opinion, I see, all the same. That I ask of you. What is your opinion? I think Catherine is very happy. That is all I can say. Because Townsend wants to marry her? Do you think him sincere? Deeply sincere. He has said to me the most appreciative, the most charming things about her. He would say them to you if he was sure you would listen. Gently. I doubt whether I can undertake it. He seems to require a great deal of gentleness. Come now, Lavinia. You haven't told me about his misfortunes. It's a long story. And I regard it as a sacred trust. He has been wild. He frankly confesses it. But he has paid for it. That's what has impoverished him, eh? Oh, Austin. He's looking for a position most earnestly. Precisely. And he is looking for it. Here, in our front parlor. The position of husband of a weak-minded woman with a large fortune would suit him to perfection. My dear brother, if you regard Catherine as a weak-minded woman, you are particularly mistaken. Most particularly. <laughs> As was the custom, the family in Washington Square, that is, Dr. Sloper, Catherine, and Lavinia, 
spent Sunday evenings receiving Sister Elizabeth and her family. On this particular Sunday, Dr. Sloper, having been called away, returns to find Morris Townsend has arrived in his absence and is seated on the couch talking to Catherine. Watching his opportunity, and the first time Morris is alone, Dr. Sloper decides to know him better. I am told, Mr. Townsend, that you are looking for a position. Oh, that sounds too fine. I should like some quiet work, something to turn an honest penny. What sort of things should you prefer? You mean, what am I fit for? Very little, I'm afraid. I have nothing but my good right arm, as they say in melodramas. You are too modest. You also have your subtle brain. What I see of you tells me you are extremely intelligent. When you say that, I hardly know what to answer. Were you kindly intending to propose something to my advantage? I have no particular proposal to make. But it occurred to me to let you know I, uh, I have you in my mind. Sometimes one hears of opportunities. For instance, should you object to leaving New York, to going a distance? I'm afraid I couldn't manage that, Dr. Sloper. I must seek my fortune here or nowhere. You see, I have ties, responsibilities. A sister, a widow from whom I've been separated a long time and to whom I'm almost everything. She rather depends on me. Ah, family feeling is very proper. I think I've heard of your sister. It's possible, but I rather doubt it. She lives so very quietly. <laughs> As quietly, you mean, as the Lady May, who has several small children. Ah, my little nephews. That's the very point. I'm helping to bring them up. I give them lessons. That's very proper, as I say, but it's hardly a career. Oh, you're right. It won't make my fortune. You must not be too bent on a fortune. But I assure you, I will keep you in mind. I won't lose sight of you. If my situation becomes desperate, Dr. Sloper, I shall perhaps take the liberty of reminding you about it. Catherine, will you meet me somewhere tomorrow or the next day? Meet you? I have something particular to say to you. Very particular. Can't you come to the house? Uh, I can't enter your doors again. Oh, Mr. Townsend. I can't. In self-respect, your father has insulted me. Insulted you? He has taunted me with my poverty. Oh, you're mistaken. You misunderstood. He laughed at me for having no position. I'm sure he means to be kind. You must not be too proud. I'll be proud only of you. Will you meet me out in Washington Square in the afternoon? It's quiet there. No one needs see us. Toward dusk. It is you who are unkind. It is you who laugh when you say such things as that. My dear You know how little there is in me to be proud of. I'm ugly and stupid. Catherine, dearest, no. I'm not even brave. Well, if you're afraid, what shall we do? You must come to the house. I'm not afraid of that. Catherine received Morris Townsend the next day on the ground she had chosen, amid the chaste upholstery of the drawing room. But Morris had something particular, very particular to say, is evident, as now, two hours after he has left, Catherine, her heart beating fast, stands before her father. Father, I have something to say to you. I shall be very happy to hear it, my dear. I am engaged to be married. You do right to tell me. And who is the happy mortal you have honored with your choice? Mr. Morris Townsend. The young man 
The happy lover generally tells the father first. He wanted to tell you first, but I persuaded him to let me do it. He means to tell you tomorrow. Why do you speak for him now? I'm afraid you do not like Mr. Townsend. You're quite right. I don't like him. Dear father, you don't know him. I have my impression of him. That is enough. I... I have a right to know the reasons for your dislike. Very well, then. Without accusing Mr. Townsend of being in love only with your fortune, there is every reason to suppose that these good prospects have entered into his calculations more largely than a solicitude for your happiness strictly requires. The principal thing we know about him is that he has led a life of dissipation and has spent a fortune of his own in doing so. That is not the principal thing we know about him. There are other things, many other things. Oh? He has high abilities, Father. He wants so much to do something. He's kind and generous and true. And his fortune, his fortune that he spent, it was very small. All the more reason he shouldn't have spent it. Catherine, you won't think me cruel. No, dear father, because if you knew how I feel, and you must know, you who know everything, you'd be so kind, so gentle. Yes, I... I think I know how you feel. And you will see Mr. Townsend tomorrow? Yes. Yes, of course. I'll wait for him to come. But, Catherine, for the present, be so good as to mention to no one that you're engaged. And you will be kind and gentle when you see him tomorrow, won't you, Father? Yes, I'll be very kind. When he comes tomorrow, send him to the study so we can talk alone. And I will be... Did you really expect I would say I was delighted at your engagement and throw my daughter into your arms? No, I had an idea you didn't like me. Indeed. What gave you the idea? The fact I am poor. Oh, that has a harsh sound. But it is about the truth. Uh, speaking of you as a son-in-law. Your absence of means or of prospects places you in a, a category from which it would be imprudent for me to select a husband for my daughter who is a weak-minded woman with a large fortune. In any other capacity, I'm perfectly prepared to like you. As a son-in-law, I abominate you. I don't think Miss Sloper a weak woman. Of course, you must defend her. It's the least you can do. But I have known my child twenty years, and you have known her six weeks. Even if she were not weak, you are still penniless. Yes, that's my weakness. Therefore, you mean I'm mercenary. I only want her money. I don't say that. I say simply that you belong to the wrong category. But your daughter doesn't marry a category. She marries an individual. An individual whom she is so good as to say she loves. One who offers so little in return. Is it possible to offer more than a most tender affection and a lifelong devotion? It is possible to offer a few other things of a more material nature. Not only is it possible, but it's usual. Don't you care a little to gratify your daughter? You enjoy the idea of making her miserable? She may as well be miserable in that way as in the other with a penniless husband. You are not right, sir. You push me to it. You argue too much. I have a great deal at stake. Well, whatever it is, you've lost it. Are you sure of that? Are you sure your daughter will give me up? I'm not sure. But I shall strongly recommend it. And as I have a great fund of respect and affection in my daughter's mind to draw upon, and as she has the sentiment of duty developed in a very high degree, I think it extremely possible. I do have a fund of affection to draw upon. Do you mean to defy me? Call it what you please, sir. I mean not to give your daughter up. I don't think she will give me up.
Austin, do you honestly believe Catherine will give up Mr. Townsend? I count on it, Elizabeth. She has such an admiration for her father. Oh, we all know about that. But it only makes me pity her more. Isn't there a chance you might be wrong about Mr. Townsend? About his material resources? Oh, no, he is poor. We all know that. I, I mean about his motive. My dear sister, I have spent my life in estimating people. And in 19 cases out of 20, I have been right. But to make doubly sure of my judgment in this case, I have arranged to have a talk with his sister, Mrs. Montgomery, tomorrow. But you must understand my situation, Mrs. Montgomery, my state of mind. Your brother wishes to marry my daughter, and I wish to find out what sort of young man he is. It is difficult to talk about one's brother. Not if you're fond of him, and have something good to say. Yes, even then. When a good deal depends upon it. Nothing depends upon it, for you. I mean for... for Miss Slocum. Ah, exactly, that's the point. My poor little girl is the best creature in the world. She is so soft, so simple-minded. She would be an easy victim, and a bad husband would have remarkable facilities for making her miserable, for she would have neither the intelligence nor the resolution to get the better of you. I'm sure if you were to see Catherine, you'd feel sorry for her. I see you're interested. I have been, since he told me of the engagement. Mrs. Montgomery, my daughter has an estate of 10,000 in her own right, and should she marry the husband I approve, she stands to inherit another 20,000 at my death. And if Morris should marry her? He would become master of 10,000 only. I should leave my own fortune to public institutions. Does Morris know this? I shall be most happy to inform him. What makes you dislike Morris so much? I dislike him exclusively as a son-in-law, as the caretaker of my only child, who is singularly ill-adapted to take care of herself. You are at liberty to contradict me, but your brother strikes me as selfish and shallow. I wonder you've discovered he's selfish. The type to which your brother belongs was made to be the ruin of you women. The type insists that someone else shall suffer for them, and women do that sort of thing, as you must know, wonderfully well. You have suffered immensely for your brother, haven't you? I don't know how you found that out. Kindly answer my question. Don't you give your brother money? Yes, I have given him money. And you've not had much to give. If you ask for a confession of poverty, it's easily made. I am very poor. And your family is numerous. I have five children. And I'm happy to say I can bring them up decently. Your brother can count. Count? What do you mean? He knows there are five and that you have very little money. I have often told him so. I have ascertained what I suspected. Your brother lives off you. I have never complained. Mrs. Montgomery has a moral satisfaction. something I should like to hear you say. I should like to hear you say, my brother Morris is abominably selfish. You distress me, sir. He is, after all, my brother. His talent... His talent... His talents are first rate. I'm sorry. I regret having so distressed you. But it's all for my poor Catherine. You must know her and you'll understand. I should like to know your daughter. Yes. Dr. Sloper, don't, don't let her marry him.
Thus ends the first episode in a two-part adaptation of Washington Square by Henry James. Brought to you by the NBC University of the Air as one of the world's great novels. Washington Square was adapted for radio by Joseph Cochran. Geraldine Kay was featured as Catherine. And Sherman Marks as Dr. Sloper. Morris Townsend was played by Ken Nordine. Lavinia by Hilda Graham. Mrs. Almond by Margaret Brayton and Mrs. Montgomery by Fern Persons. Jonathan Hall was the narrator. The music was composed by Emil Soderstrom, and the orchestra was directed by Bernard Berkowitz. The entire production was under the direction of Homer Hecht. Listen next week to the second episode of Washington Square by Henry James. And remember that your local public library invites you to make use of its many facilities. To add to your enjoyment of this series, we recommend the Handbook of the World's Great Novels, which you may obtain by sending 25 cents to World's Great Novels, Post Office Box 30, Station J, New York, 27, New York. That's Post Office Box 30, Station J, New York, 27. This is John Conrad, and this program came to you from Chicago. The World's Great Novels. The National Broadcasting Company presents the second and final episode in its dramatization of Henry James' penetrating study of a widower and his daughter in the metropolitan America of 1895. Washington Square. Another in our series of books that live the world's great novels. The confession wrung from Mrs. Montgomery that her brother Morris was selfish and her plea not to let him marry Catherine Sloper was a triumph and a great moral satisfaction to the father. With the cold, detached attitude of the scientist... Dr. Sloper prepared himself to watch the drama unfold. The idea of a struggle with her father weighed heavily on Catherine's soul, and she was hoping that by being very good, that is, by not seeing Morris and not mentioning him, the situation would in some mysterious way improve. But Aunt Lavinia was dismayed at the lack of any change, and over and over repeated that Catherine should act, should uh, do something striking. Lavinia was in daily communication with Morris and pleaded with him to meet her and finally arranged a tryst in an oyster bar in 7th Avenue. Ah, Morris, you must prepare for the worst. You mean your brother won't come around? You will never win him over by argument. You must take action. What do you mean? You must elope with Catherine. And what will that gain me? Don't you see? If you marry in spite of him, it will prove you are interested only in Catherine, not the money. Ah. Do you suppose there's a will already made out in Catherine's paper? Oh, I suppose so. Even doctors must die. And you believe he would certainly change it? Yes. But he would change it back again after the marriage. So in the long run, you would get the money. Ah, but one can't depend on that. Do you want to depend on it? I, uh, I mean... Well, I'm afraid of being the cause of injury to Catherine. Of course you are, my dear boy. But everything will turn out all right if only you will be brave, daring. Carry Catherine away and marry her secretly. Oh, my goodness, the time. 
I must go before they miss me. I'll tell Catherine I've seen you. How delighted she will be to know I have been with you to comfort you, to encourage you. You should not have seen Mr. Townsend. It isn't right, Aunt Lavinia. I've promised my father not to see him. Oh, what did he say? How did he look? He looked very handsome, but terribly haggard and dark under the eyes. There was something grand and brilliant in his very misery. You'd better not make any more appointments with Mr. Townsend. My poor child, are you jealous of me? Oh, Aunt Lavinia, how can you say such things? I, I, I don't believe Mr. Townsend himself likes it. Gentlemen enjoy such things. I know what gentlemen like. My father wouldn't like it if he knew. Pray, do you propose to inform him? No, Aunt Lavinia, but please, please don't do it again. But the poor boy, if you could have seen him, his dark eyes, his misery. Someone must see him and let him know that you are steadfast. You must see him. I shall tell father that I want to see Morris again. I shall tell him tomorrow. Come in. Come in. Well, what's the matter, Catherine? You're standing there like a ghost. Come in. You told me if I should have anything more to say about Mr. Townsend, you would be glad to hear it. Ah, exactly, my dear. I thought I would tell you that I have not seen him, but I would like to do so. To bid him goodbye? He's not going away. Then it is not to bid him goodbye. No, Father, not that. At least not forever. I should like to see him. Have you written to him? Yes, four times. It would take only one letter to dismiss him. I haven't done that. I have asked him to... asked him to wait. <laughs> Catherine, you're a dear, faithful child. Come here to your father. Let me hold you. Oh, Father, <laughs> you kiss me so seldom. Tell me, do you wish to make your father very happy? I should like to, but I'm afraid I can't. You can, you can. It all depends on your will. Is it to give him up? Yes, darling, it's to give him up. You are happier than I, Father. Catherine, have you no faith in my wisdom? In my tenderness and my solicitude for your future? Father. Don't you suppose I know something of men? Their vices, their follies, their falsities? He's not vicious. He isn't false. I can't believe that. I don't ask you to believe it, but to take it on trust. What has he done? What do you know? He has never done anything. He's a selfish idler. Oh, Father, don't abuse him. Oh, I don't mean to abuse him. That would be a mistake. However, you may do as you wish. I may see him again? Just as you choose. Will you forgive me? By no means. I wish to explain, to tell him to wait. To wait for what? Till you know him better, until you consent. Don't you tell him any such nonsense. I know him well enough, and I shall never consent. But we can wait a long time. Of course. You can wait till I die, if you wish. Father. Your engagement will have one delightful effect on you. It will make you extremely impatient for that event. It is certain, Father, that if I don't marry before your death, I will not after. <laughs> Catherine, there's one thing you can tell Mr. Townsend when you see him again. That if you marry without my consent, I do not leave you a penny. That would be right. But, my dear child, your simplicity is touching. 
Just you make that remark in that tone and with that expression to Mr. Townsend and take note of the answer. It won't be polite. It'll express irritation. He may even be rude. He will never be rude to me. Tell him what I say all the same. I think I will see him then. Exactly as you choose. It will be only one for the present. Exactly as you choose. I've told you what I think. If you see him, you will be an ungrateful, cruel child and will have given your old father the greatest pain of his life. You may go now. Oh, Father! <laughs> oh, my darling, you should not have made me wait so long before telling me to come. You don't know how I've been living. Ah, but that's past. Now... Have you called me to give me good news? Has your father repented? No, my. He still looks at it the same way. Then you must take me or leave me. You can't please your father and me both. You must choose between us. I've chosen you. Then marry me next week. Isn't there some other way? If you fear your father more than you love me, then your love is not what I hoped it was. You're terribly afraid of him, aren't you? I don't know that I am. Really? Uh, I don't know what you mean by really. Maury, my father has asked me to tell you very distinctly and directly that if I marry without his consent, I shall not inherit a penny of his fortune. He made a great point of this. He seemed to think... to think. Ah, he thought it would make a difference. Well, it will. How do you mean, a difference? In that we shall be poorer by many thousands of dollars but you will not suffer any loss of affection from me. He thought that message would annoy me, and when you delivered it, I would throw off the mask and leave you. Well, you can tell him from me that I don't care that for his message. Oh, I don't think I could tell him that. Do you know, you sometimes disappoint me. I disappoint everyone. Aunt Lavinia and my father. Catherine, it's your belief, then, he will stick to his idea of disinheriting you. My sorrow is that if I marry you, he will think I'm not good. Then he will never forgive you, is that it? Oh, then you must love me very much. I will. There can be no doubt of it. But, but don't you think if you were to try to be very clever, you might in the end conjure it away? It seems to me a really clever woman in your place, if she set about it right, might bring him around at last. Don't you think... Oh, Morris, I'm not clever. Morris. Yes? I will marry you as soon as you please. Catherine's days in the big house in Washington Square were dismal indeed after her offer to marry Morris any day he wished. Because of her high sense of honor... It seemed that in declaring her love for Morris, she had broken a sacred law. Dr. Sloper knew perfectly well what he was about, and determined not to speak first, divided his time until Catherine, torn between love for Morris, compassion for her father, and driven by her high sense of duty, broke the silence. Father, I have seen Morris again. How does that concern your father, whose wishes you no longer heed? I think we shall marry before long. And meanwhile, 
I shall see him rather often, about once a week. Why not three times a day? What prevents your meeting him as often as you choose? Oh, Father, don't you care? Not a button. Once you marry, it's quite the same to me when or where or why you do it. I... Catherine. Catherine, shall you be married within the next four or five months? I don't know, Father. It's not easy for us to make up our minds. Put it off, then, for six months. In the meantime, I will take you to Europe. Father. I would like very much for you to go. Oh, Father, it would be delightful to go to Europe. Very well, then, we will go. Pack up your clothes. I'd better tell Mr. Townsend. Oh. Well, if you mean by that, you'd better ask his permission. All that remains for me is to hope he will give it. Ah, we will rest here for a while, Catherine. Father, it's so raw and cold up here. Ah. We're so high, I breathe with difficulty. Should we go on? What, stop before we've come to the top of the pass? <laughs> and miss the most enchanting view of the Italian Alps? It's so cold and desolate. Father, why are you looking at me like that? We have been away eight months. Have you given him up? No, Father. Does he write to you? Yes. About twice a month. I am very angry. I'm you sorry. You try my patience. And it's time you knew what I'm like. I'm not a very good man. Though I am very smooth externally. Inwardly, I am very passionate. And I assure you, I can be harsh. Why are your hands twitching? Why are you staring at my throat? Father, can we go back to the carriage, please? I am extremely angry with you. Why has it taken you so suddenly? It has not taken me suddenly. I've been raging inwardly for the last eight months we've been abroad. But just now this seemed a good place to fare out. It's... It's so quiet. The valley is far below. We stand on the brink and... We are... Alone. Would you like to be left in such a lonely spot as this, Catherine, and starve? What do you mean? That will be your fate, you know. That's how he will leave you. That's not true. You ought not to say it, Father. It's not right, and it's not true. No. No, it's not right, because you won't believe it. But it is true. But what do you mean to do when you get home? We shall probably marry. All I ask is that you... You give me definite notice. When a poor man still loses his only child, he likes to have an inkling of it before him. Oh, Father, you will not lose me. Mr. Townsend ought to be very grateful to me. I've done a mighty good thing for you in taking you abroad. With all the knowledge and taste you've acquired, your value is twice as great. <laughs> we have fattened the sheep before he kills it. Well, I shall waste no more money on this venture. We shall return home. Upon her arrival in New York, Catherine had to wait until the next day to see Morris. But that evening, she listened with mixed feelings of interest and apprehension as the intensely sympathetic Aunt Lavinia embellished the qualities of her betrothed. Though it was a pleasure to talk to one who was not unjust to Morris, it was painful to hear another woman interpret and explain the qualities of the man so dear and understandable only to her. 
I suppose you think you know him, my dear, but you don't. You will someday, but it will be only after you've lived with him. I may almost say I have lived with him. I think I know him now. I've had such wonderful opportunities. It's a wonderful character, full of energy and passion and justice, true. He wrote me that you had been very kind to him. He came quite frequently. I wish he had not spent so much time here, but had found some employment. Well, he has found employment. It's beautiful news. He's gone into partnership with a commission merchant. Oh, I'm so glad. Now your father will think differently of him. My father is more determined than before. More terrible. Well, I must say you've grown very brave. Yes, Aunt Lavinia. I am braver than I was. I shall never plead with father for anything. I have come home to be married. My darling, we shall be married. But but before we do, I would like to have a try at bringing your father around. You would only make him worse. Oh, you say that because I managed so badly before. I'm much wiser now. I've had a year to think it over. I'll have more tact. Is that what you've been thinking of for a year? Much of the time. The idea sticks in my crop. I don't like to be beaten. How are you beaten if you marry me? Of course not on the main issue. But I am, don't you see, and all the rest of it. On the question of my reputation, my pride in proving your father wrong. Do let me have a go at him again. Please don't try. Nothing good will come of it. I have a very good reason. And what is your reason? He is not very fond of me. Oh, Barbara. Don't say anything unkind, Morris. He can't help it. It's because he's so fond of my mother, whom he lost when I was born. She was beautiful and very, very brilliant. I'm not at all like her. I feel separated from my father now. And I have come between you and your father. Morris, you must be very kind to me now. It is a great thing to be separated from your father, whom you worship, before... Before I entered your life. I wonder... I wonder if I can make up for the unhappiness I've caused you, Catherine. I have been unhappy, or would have been, if I didn't love you so much. You and I must be very happy together, Morris. You are all I have now. My brother's hatred burns with a lurid flame. The flame that never dies. But it does not light up your future, Morris. I can extract nothing from Catherine. She's so terribly secretive since your last visit. That visit when I am so sure something very important happened. She seems to expect to be married soon. And has evidently made preparations while in Europe. Great quantities of clothing. Ten pairs of shoes. My dear friend, I am intensely anxious to see you, as I want to bring you news of the utmost importance. Meet me on Wednesday and I will tell you... You have told me of your sympathy a thousand times, Lavinia. Just as you've told me her father combines the properties of a lump of ice and a red-hot coal. Catherine has made it thoroughly clear. 
And you have told me till I'm sick of hearing it. <sighs> he will never give us a penny. I regard that as mathematically proved. Couldn't you bring a lawsuit against him? I will bring a lawsuit against you if you ask me any more such nonsensical questions. A man should know when he's beaten. I must give her up. Yes, I must give her up. I think I understand you. Couldn't couldn't you take her down a little, prepare her, and try to ease it off? She will suffer much. You must console her. You ought to make it easy for me to tell her. Should you like me to tell her? Well, you can just explain. Yes, that's it. Explain to her that I can't bring myself to step in between her and her father. That's like you. So generous, so finely felt. Oh, botheration. Do you mean never to see her again? Oh, no. I shall come again. But what's the use of dragging it out? I've been four times since she came back. I can't keep it up indefinitely. She oughtn't to expect that, you know. A woman should never keep a man dangling. He came again without bringing off the last parting, and again, and again. It was evident that Lavinia had not prepared Catherine for the blow, and Morris found the graceful exit he had mentally rehearsed so many times, blocked by the expectant look in Catherine's eyes. Having no airs, no arts, she never attempted to hide her expectancy. But as his calls became of shorter and shorter duration, and his conversation so hollow, when really they should have had so much to talk about, she became alarmed. Are you sick, Morris? You seem so restless and you look pale. I'm not at all well. You oughtn't to work so hard. I must work. You know people talk tremendously about a man's marrying a rich girl. It's excessively disagreeable. Oh, Morris, you're too proud. But we must bear these things together. There are some things we can't bear together, Catherine. For instance, separation. Why do you... Speak of separation. You must promise not to make a scene. A scene? Do I make scenes? All women do. I do. Where are you going? To New Orleans. About buying some cotton. I'm perfectly willing to go to New Orleans. Do you think I'd take you down there? It's a nest of yellow fever. If there is yellow fever, Morris, you must not go. It's to make $6,000. Do you grudge me that satisfaction? We have no need for $6,000. You can afford to say that. This is my great chance. You can go to New Orleans some other time. There'll always be plenty of cotton. It isn't the moment to choose. You said you wouldn't make a scene. I call this making a scene. But then it is you who are making it. I've never asked you anything before. We've waited too long already. Very well, then. I'll transact my business by letter. Now I must go. Try and be calmer the next time I come. When will you come? Uh, I'll come next Saturday. Come tomorrow. I want you to come tomorrow. I'll be very quiet. I said Saturday. Yes, Saturday too, but tomorrow first. Yes, and if I don't come tomorrow, you'll say I deceived you. You can come if you will. I'm a busy man. I'm not a dangler. Morris, are you going to leave me? Yes. For a little while. For how long? Till you're reasonable again. I shall never be reasonable in that way. Think of what I have done. I've given up everything. You shall now have everything back. You wouldn't say that if you didn't mean something. What is it? What's changed you? What have I done? I, I'll write you. 
That's better. Oh, you won't come back. <laughs> Dear Catherine, don't believe that. I promise you that you will see me again. <laughs> Catherine waited in vain for word from Morris. Her two short letters went unanswered. She tried to hide her grief and desperation, but with her simple, honest nature, this was impossible. Although the doctor had informed his younger sister Elizabeth that the scoundrel had backed out of the marriage, he had said nothing to Catherine. He let a week go by, then one morning strolled into the parlor where she was sitting alone. It doesn't seem to me, Catherine, that you're treating me just now with all the consideration I deserve. I don't know what I've done, Father. You've apparently quite banished from your mind the request I made you in Europe. The request that you would notify me in advance before leaving my house. I have not left your house. But you intend to leave it? Your mind has already taken up its residence with your prospective husband. I will try to be more cheerful. You certainly ought to be cheerful. To the pleasure of marrying a brilliant young man. You add that of having your own way. You're a very lucky young lady. I would like to go to my room. May I first have the pleasure of your answer? When you go, your Aunt Lavinia marches. It would be convenient for me to know when I can expect an empty house. I don't know. Morris had to go to New Orleans on business. Will it be tomorrow? Is it next week or the week after? I shall not go away. Indeed, where do you plan to set up your abode? Surely, knowing how I regard your marriage, you do not intend to ask your proud young man to live under my roof. I'm afraid the common respect we hold for each other would not survive the strain. Mr. Townsend will not be back. Has he backed out then, just as I said he would? No. I have broken off my engagement. You... You have broken it off? I have asked him to leave New York, and he has gone away for a long time. I must say I don't understand you, Catherine. After all these months of steadfast devotion, and when I was given to understand that you could not live without your young man, you calmly tell me you've dismissed him. How does he take his dismissal? I don't know. You mean you've just told him to go away for a long time? Your tone would seem to indicate that you don't care how he took the dismissal. Isn't that rather cruel? Cruel? How could I ever be cruel to Morris? Isn't it cruel on your part to have encouraged the young man all this time? Played with him and then suddenly dismissing? My dear child, no man likes that. Having a woman make a fool of him? For 17 years, the name of Morris was never mentioned in the Sloper household. But Catherine, refusing even to consider the few suitors the doctor managed to interest, grew into an admirable old maid. There was something dead in her life, and her duty was to try and fill its place. She mingled freely in the usual gaieties of the town and became a great favorite of the young people who were apt to confide their love affairs to her. But if she managed to lead an undisturbed life, apparently untroubled by thoughts of Mr. Townsend, the doctor did not for he was obsessed with the fear that after his death, Mr. Townsend might come back and rob him of his triumph. Catherine, I would like you to promise me something before I die. I hope you shall live for a very long time. Promise me not to marry Morris Townsend. <laughs> 
after I'm gone. Why do you speak of him now? Because he is a topic. He has lately come to New York and has been at your cousin's house. Oh? He has grown fat and bald, Catherine. But he has not made his fortune. That's why I ask you to promise. I seldom think of Mr. Townsend. Promise me after my death to do the same. I don't think I can promise that. I ask for a very particular reason. I am altering my will. I can't promise. You are obstinate. Upon my word, I had no idea how obstinate you are. I was not always so, Father. Once I worshipped you. About a year later, Dr. Sloper died from a severe cold. Catherine and her Aunt Lavinia lived on quietly for years in the big house in Washington Square. Lavinia, romantic to the last, persuaded Morris Townsend that he should again try to arouse the flame of love in Catherine. He came. It took but little urging. But he left very quickly. Years before, when her father had accused her of being impatient for his death, she had replied... If I don't marry him before your death, I will not after. And Catherine kept her word. Washington Square by Henry James, brought to you by the NBC University of the Air as one of the world's great novels. Washington Square was adapted for radio by Joseph Cochran. Geraldine Kay and Sherman Marks were featured as Catherine and Dr. Sloper. Morris Townsend was played by Ken Nordine and Lavinia by Hilda Graham. Jonathan Howell was the narrator. The music was composed by Emil Soderstrom and the orchestra was directed by Bernard Berquist. The entire production was under the direction of Homer Heck. Listen next week to the first episode of a three-part version of The Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Samuel Clemens. And don't forget that your local public library wants you to make use of its many facilities. To add to your enjoyment of this series, we recommend the Handbook of the World's Great Novels, which you may obtain by sending 25 cents to World's Great Novels, Post Office Box 30, Station J, New York 27, New York. That's Post Office Box 30, Station J, New York 27, New York. John Conrad speaking. This program came to you from Chicago. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. <laughs>